I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Greetings. Today, we have a clinical case for you. Oh, goody. Now, as always, when we present clinical cases, we do so anonymously. That means that the identity of the veterinarian that saw the case, the identity of the patient, and the clients are all hidden. And some details of the case that don't affect the outcome might have been changed to help protect anonymity. So, JJ. Yes. Tell us about today's case. Okie dokie. Today's case is about Martini. Uh, Martini is a eight-year-old male castrated domestic short hair cat. He has a 48-hour history of decreased appetite and lethargy. In the owner reports, he doesn't want to play or move around very much. This morning, he hasn't moved out of his cat bed and didn't come to the food bowl at all. So Martini is ADR. Mm-hmm. Ain't doing right. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, there's a lot of things that can cause that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's move on to the physical exam. Okay. Um, On physical exam, the veterinarian noticed right away that Martini has dyspnea, or labored breathing. Specifically, uh, he appears to have expiratory dyspnea, or difficulty breathing out. His heart rate is over 200 beats per minute, his respiratory rate is over 50 breaths per minute, and his mucous membranes have a gray-to-blue appearance. So Martini was rushed into the treatment area, of course, and placed on flow-by oxygen. Okay, so Martini is a dyspnea case, Mm -hmm. one of my least favorite types of cases, Yes, as we have established on the podcast previously. Especially in cats, man. They panic when they can't. I mean, I don't blame them. I would panic, too. Exactly. You can't explain to them that, you know, we're trying to help you. Please don't freak out. Okay, well, so let's just really quickly talk about types of dyspnea. Mm -hmm. And some differential diagnoses just right off the bat. So the veterinarian in this case noticed that there was expiratory dyspnea. That means we're having trouble or a longer time when breathing out. That's opposed to inspiratory dyspnea where the trouble occurs when the pet is breathing in. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if we are having inspiratory dyspnea or trouble breathing in, we think upper airway disease, okay? Like a obstruction of the upper airway would be the classic one, okay? If we have expiratory dyspnea or trouble breathing out, we can have a few things causing that. But generally, we're talking about something happening in the lower airway. So you could have obstructive lower airway disease. The classic thing in cats would be, quote, feline asthma, okay? Or you could have a restrictive form like uh, pleural cavity disease. That's something in the space between the lung and the body wall, typically fluid. You could also have parenchymal pulmonary disease. Things like interstitial fibrosis would be on the list. Uh, certainly pulmonary edema would be on the list as well. And then neoplasia, cancer, metastatic disease causing significant changes to that lung parenchyma, all of those would be on the list for expiratory dyspnea. When we have a patient present this way, my number one favorite thing, the thing that I super want to do while the kitty is just sitting there, hopefully sternally, comfortably just resting on oxygen, 
is to just pop the ultrasound on the chest and look at the lung fields with the ultrasound. So a T-fast, that is what I would want to do first. Luckily, the clinic did have an ultrasound machine, so the veterinarian performed a T-fast as the first line test. Okay, that is awesome. Now, let's just briefly talk about what if I don't have an ultrasound, which mm-hmm. um, was my reality for a long time. Uh, first, I'll say ultrasound is my recommendation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's what I prefer. I absolutely hate seeing dyspnea cases when I don't have access to an ultrasound because I really, I just feel like I'm going in blind on it. Uh, but what can you do? The first thing I will mention is radiographs. Now, if the patient can't breathe and it's pretty severe, radiographs could kill them. We've mentioned that on the mm-hmm. podcast before, but I think it bears repeating. You never want to kill the animal by taking x-rays trying to save it. Like, that doesn't make any sense. So you could try, maybe, depending on how stable the cat is, to do radiographs with no or minimal restraint. Mm -hmm. Some patients, if you just set them on the x-ray table, will kind of lie laterally for you, and you could just snap a quick x-ray. Some of them will allow you to just gently position them in sternal recumbency, and you can take a DV view that way. Mm-hmm. And some are like, fuck this. You are not taking a radiograph of me. So sometimes that doesn't work, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when we're talking about taking radiographs of a really sick cat that can't breathe well, we are not talking about expertly positioned, you know, textbook quality radiographs. We're talking about take the radiograph you can get and see what you're Seeking. Okay, now Mm -hmm. the main thing that you're looking for on a radiograph like that is pleural effusion, because if there's that fluid sitting there between the lung and the body wall, we know then next thing, boom, thoracocentesis, we need to draw that fluid off. Then you can go back and get like your textbook rads, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So... Sometimes that's just not possible. Sometimes the cat is coming in and it's just in such bad shape that you don't, frankly, you don't have time to get the x-ray machine set up, get their name put in, all that bullshit. You just don't have time and you can't transport them and they won't tolerate it. So some clinicians advocate for a blind thoracocentesis. What that means is we're trying to decide if there's pleural effusion by going ahead and tapping the chest and seeing what we get. Now, if you you know, read a lot of veterinary message boards, you will encounter clinicians who are like, that's always my first go-to thing. I've been doing it for a bazillion, bazillion years, and I've never had a problem and all of this stuff, but it's not without potential complication, okay? Luckily, this doesn't happen a lot, but there is technically a risk of pneumothorax, collapsed lung when you do any thoracocentesis. And then I read at least one post where Someone had attempted a blind thoracocentesis and accidentally tapped the heart, and that case did not go okay. Mm. I don't know if it went poorly because they tapped the heart or if the, you know, situation, the cat was going to die anyway. Who knows? Okay, but so, like, I'll say that I don't prefer a blind thoracocentesis. It makes me feel very uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. and I super hate doing it. Okay, so... Uh, before you attempt any sort of blind thoracocentesis, you need to do a lot of continuing education about it. There is a really great uh, CE talk by Vet Girl, uh, mm-hmm. Justine Lee, mm-hmm. where she talks about like the landmarks and when to do it and that kind of thing. And I would strongly recommend 
uh, taking her CE course on that. So other things that you could do. Well, you could say a high number of kitty cats who come in with these symptoms are going to be in heart failure, and those guys need uh, furosemide, a diuretic, uh, and oxygen. And so we could go ahead and, and do that, put them in an oxygen cage, and wait and see what happens. Mm. Pros and cons. If you have chosen the correct thing, if you have guessed correctly, they might improve. Okay. And if you've guessed wrongly, they probably won't, but they probably won't be severely harmed by that action. And, you know, the the unfortunate thing, though, is if they have pleural effusion, that fluid between the lung and the body wall, furosemide or Lasix, doesn't really help with that. There's a big misconception. It doesn't really help very much. And then, you know, maybe you could do something called a pro-BNP test, uh, which is like, a, technically, it's like a blood test to, quote, check for heart disease in kitties, okay? This could help you determine, is this a respiratory emergency that we're dealing with, like something happening with the lung that's a primary lung issue like feline asthma, or are we dealing with a heart issue more likely? It is available as a point-of-care test. I haven't seen it widely used in general practice, but it is available. So if you were trying to decide, is this cat in heart failure or does this cat have asthma? You could technically run that test to see. You know, the only disadvantage though would be like, if you can't take radiographs, mm-hmm. how are you going to draw blood? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah. So not great options. That's why ultrasound I say is like oh, the best the one. Best. Yeah. I'm, I really hate I've really gotten to the point, I mean, uh, this is going to sound kind of elitist, maybe you're babyish, or I, however, it's going to sound weird to some people, but I won't practice without an ultrasound anymore. I just won't. It has become so integral to my evaluation of every patient that unless I was literally just seeing wellness cases all day, I have to have that ultrasound. I mean, I use it daily at least. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Especially yeah. on emergency. I will not work emergency without an ultrasound. I, I'm not going to mm, do that. Yeah. No. No, no. Okay. So they did have an ultrasound, though. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that they scanned the chest. They did. Okay. Okay. So the TFAS showed uh, two numbers to count B lines in all lung fields. No obvious pleural effusion. Okay. So we have B lines in all the lung fields, and there's a lot of them. And we have no sign of pleural effusion, so no fluid between the lung and the body wall. Mm -hmm. Okay. This right here is why I love ultrasound, because it's quick. I don't have to do the blind stick into the thorax. With this, we're going to feel pretty confident that we know what's going on. First, let's talk about what are B-lines, what do they look like, and what do they mean? B-lines on ultrasound are caused by fluid in the interstitial space or alveoli that is surrounded by air. And on ultrasound, you'll see that they create these like very neatly discernible uh, vertical hyperechoic lines, okay? So if you are listening to me say that and you're like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> Go to ultrasound CE, okay? The, what you need is the Vet Blue ultrasound CE. I've actually been to it three or four times at this point. <laughs> um, because I keep getting, you know, better information every time I go. 
But so basically, you're going to put the ultrasound probe on the chest. Just put a little alcohol. You don't even have to shave. Just alcohol the chest. Pop the probe on there. You're going to look between the ribs, and you're going to look and see if you see these vertical bright white lines, okay? And if you do, those are what we call beelines, or sometimes people call them lung rockets would be the other thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> lung rockets. Lung rockets. Okay, so when beelines are present, we have some different differentials to consider. So in a non-traumatic case, no, no evidence or history of trauma, we think pulmonary edema. Okay, that's fluid inside the lung, roughly. Mm-hmm. Either cardiogenic, meaning from a heart problem, or non-cardiogenic, not from a heart problem. We could have hemorrhage or bleeding, or it could be inflammation, or it could be evidence of a pneumonia. Versus if we have a traumatic case, that could be lung contusions that we're seeing. Now, when we're looking with the ultrasound in the chest and we're trying to decide whether a cardiac issue is present, measuring the size of the left atrium is important, Hmm. but that takes a lot of training, okay? Uh, You can accidentally be inaccurate with those measurements if you accidentally, like, measure part of a blood vessel with it or different things like that, so... If you're getting into trying to measure the left atrial size, you really, really need to go to more continuing education about this, okay? So when we look at studies of cats who have beelines visible on ultrasound of the lungs, and those beelines are present in large numbers, like equal to or greater than three lines in at least two sites, on each side of the thorax that suggests a cardiogenic pulmonary edema, meaning a heart problem causing fluid in the lungs. So in a study of dogs and cats with sudden onset of dyspnea, patients with cardiogenic pulmonary edema had a higher number of positive sites uh, with beelines present uh, versus patients with non-cardiac causes of dyspnea. And then in another study, the overall sensitivity and specificity for point-of-care lung ultrasound in the diagnosis of cardiogenic pulmonary edema was between 74 and 84%, so pretty high. And then in one more study, they found that a presence of equal to or greater than four B-lines had a sensitivity of 91% and a specificity of 100% for diagnosing cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So if you look at the studies, you put the ultrasound on the chest and you're seeing lots of beelines in multiple spots on both sides, this is going to be cardiogenic pulmonary edema the vast majority of the time. So that's Mm -hmm. super helpful. Yeah. Right there, you've only done one test, you haven't stressed the cat out, and you have a pretty good Mm -hmm. chance of knowing what this is. So in Martini's case, there isn't an audible heart murmur, um, but that doesn't rule out cardiac disease. Correct. It doesn't rule out cardiac disease. So not all cats with heart disease have heart murmurs. In fact, if you look at hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as an example, less than 50% of the cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy even have an audible heart murmur on physical exam. Only about a third of cats with an audible heart murmur have any form of cardiomyopathy. So sometimes you can have a murmur and it's not even a heart problem. And then 30 to 40% of cats presenting with clinical signs of heart disease do not have a murmur. So it's actually pretty common for you to see a cat have 
heart disease, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, but no murmur. So always keep it on the list. Okay. So you mentioned the pro-BMP essay. Uh, It doesn't look like that essay was available in this case. He's too unstable for radiographs. So let's update our differentials for this patient based on the TFAST and physical examination results. Okay. So I think we need to call this cardiogenic pulmonary edema, given what we have to work with. Radiographs aren't safe. Mm -hmm. The pet needs to stay in oxygen. He needs to stay in a low-stress environment. The reason that I would go ahead and call this cardiogenic pulmonary edema is because of those studies that we just talked about showing that when we're seeing this level of B-lines in the chest, it's like over 90%. So I think because we can't get more tests, we need to treat what we think is happening first and and go from there. So that's going to involve getting the owner's permission to give Lasix, a strong diuretic, place in oxygen and see how the patient does. And if that didn't work, Mm -hmm. then I would go back and try to reassess and see if we can take a quickie radiograph. So let's pause the case for a moment and talk about cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Okay. When we talk about heart failure creating pulmonary edema, we are talking about left-sided heart failure. Now, left-sided congestive heart failure arises from cardiac diseases that cause volume and or pressure overload to the left heart. Things like severe myxomatous mitral valve degeneration, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which we mentioned earlier, dilated cardiomyopathy, and then some congenital diseases. Now, most diseases causing left-sided heart failure fall into one of three categories. Myocardial failure and systolic dysfunction, like in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or restrictive cardiomyopathy. We can have volume overload secondary to valvular regurgitation, like we see in mitral valve regurgitation or aortic insufficiency. And we can see increased myocardial stiffness and diastolic dysfunction. And this happens also in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but also aortic stenosis. And some overlap between these three categories is possible. So what sorts of abnormalities are typically seen on physical exam when cat patients are in heart failure? Well, as we mentioned earlier, there may or may not be a heart murmur. Mm -hmm. Elevated heart rate and respiratory rate plus increased respiratory effort are commonly seen. Coughing is not common in cats. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you hear people say, well, they haven't been coughing, so it can't be heart failure. That is incorrect information. Most cats with heart failure do not cough. You may see edema fluid around the nose or mouth if the uh, pulmonary edema that they have is very severe. And I've actually seen this quite a bit doing ER work, and owners will present the pet thinking that they're vomiting. They've seen the pet, quote, vomiting up this foamy fluid, and it's usually like pink tinged. And when I look at it, I'm like, that's not vomit. Mm. You know, and then, and then most of the time they're dyspneic and then it's easy to understand like, oh, mm-hmm. they're not really vomiting. It, it, they just have heart disease. <laughs> Other things, just not doing right type symptoms like in Martini's case. Mm-hmm. So anorexia, lethargy, weakness, weight loss, and syncope, which is fainting. Mm-hmm. You might hear an arrhythmia, which is an abnormal like uh, heartbeat and heartbeat that's out of rhythm. You might hear crackles in the chest. Uh, Now, there's some misconceptions about this, too. Crackles in the chest do not equal heart disease, heart failure. 
they are not pathognomonic for heart failure. They're just evidence that something is fucked up with the lungs. Mm -hmm. Doesn't tell you what. (laughs) And then left-sided heart failure can cause either pulmonary edema or pleural effusion or both at the same time. You might also see cyanosis like we saw in Martini's case. Now, in a case like this one where there are acute signs of heart failure, treatment consists of diuretic therapy, furosemide, and oxygen supplementation, like we talked about earlier, plus low-stress handling. That is very important. Mm. Sometimes you need to give the patients medication for anxiety or opiates. Uh, Just to keep them calm, though, do not sedate these patients. What I have seen recommended the most is butorphanol. And then if we have pleural effusion, you need to do a thoracocentesis ASAP. Then worry about getting really good radiographs. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Martini doesn't have pleural effusion, though, so they wouldn't want to do this in in that case. And then you worry about long-term management later, okay? With the exception of discussing the prognosis with the owner, Owners need to know that this is going to be an expensive, acute treatment. And if we're successful, the pet is going to need lifelong continuing care. So this is not going to be one of those cases where it's like, boom, five cupcakes, done, out the door, riding off into the sunset. No, Mm -mm. this is major. It's going to be hospitalization. Oxygen therapy is expensive. Furosemide is not that expensive, but the in-hospital monitoring is. And then the long-term care, they're going to need meds long-term. They're going to need to, you know, see the cardiologist and all of those kinds of things in an ideal world. So this is not going to be a zero-dollar long-term maintenance scenario. No, and they usually have repeat episodes. That's correct. The prognosis for cats with heart failure is guarded long-term. Yes. So the underlying process whatever that is that's creating the heart failure, will generally be progressive. So these patients usually succumb to their illness eventually. Now, we have to prep the owners for long-term medication and long-term and frequent monitoring. We also need to prep them that this is not, quote, like a curable thing. The reason I'm making such a big deal about that is, unfortunately, some owners are not up for long-term care. It's just part of life. Like maybe they can't give medicine at home. Maybe they're not in a financial position to be able to do this. Maybe they're also like caring for elderly relatives and have small children and have a job. And they're just like, I can't do one more thing. Mm -hmm. And all of those are really valid reasons that they might decide to not pursue the acute care. Because if we can't do the chronic part, then why? Okay, let's get back to Martini's case. Okay. He was placed in an oxygen cage and given IM Lasix, which is furosemide, because he wouldn't tolerate the placement of an IV catheter. He seemed more comfortable after about an hour, and his respiratory rate decreased to the 40s. The furosemide dose was repeated every two hours, but they were careful not to exceed the maximum daily dose. And by the end of the day, Martini was able to be weaned off oxygen and tolerated room air. Once he stabilized, radiographs of the thorax were performed, which showed severe left atrial enlargement. Okay, so when you're looking at radiographs, left atrial enlargement is going to appear usually as a left auricular bulge. You can see this most effectively on either a dorsoventral or ventrodorsal radiograph, and that bulge is going to be at the 2 to 3 o'clock position in the ventrodorsal view. 
Now, if you are looking at radiographs of a cat like this and you're uncertain, remember, you can always send these radiographs out for a specialist to review. So if you have any question, just do it. It's not that expensive to do it, and it really gives a lot of peace of mind. Mm -hmm. So based on the radiographs and clinical history, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the most likely differential diagnosis. Now, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the most common cardiac disease of cats. Yes, HCM represents about 60% of all heart disease in cats. And the prevalence just in the general cat population is estimated to be as high as 30%. So like 30% of all cat, like just think about 10 cats you know, three of them probably have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Mm -hmm. That's a crazy. That's a lot of cats. Yeah. Now, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a non-physiologic thickening of the left ventricle, and that leads to diastolic dysfunction. We think about this primarily as a genetic condition, and multiple genetic mutations have been identified in purebred cats with HCM. In affected cats, there is hypertrophy, or bigness, of the myocytes. Those are the individual muscle cells and disorganized sarcomeric alignment. The cells have oddly shaped nuclei and a chaotic myofibril arrangement. <laughs> Abnormalities are also frequently noted in the coronary arteriolar walls. Uh, there is elongation and malformation of the mitral valve leaflets and myocardial fibrosis. This leads to additional functional abnormalities in the heart, including reduced stroke volume, reduced chamber size, and decreased compliance of left ventricle. Compliance, in that case, means like flexibility, kind mm -hmm. of. Sometimes there is left ventricular outflow obstruction secondary to systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. That's abbreviated SAM, S-A-M. <laughs> so if you're reading about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and you keep seeing S-A-M, you're like, what the f is going on? <laughs> that's, that's what that means. Why is SAM in the story? <laughs> If the cats are experiencing left ventricular outflow obstruction, that could be dynamic, meaning sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not there. And it can change with things like exercise or catecholamine release. And that's why stress management in these cats is so important. Because of poor coronary blood flow, myocardial ischemia, lack of blood flow to the heart muscle, can develop which can lead to ventricular arrhythmias and even myocardial infarction, just like a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And with HCM, there's also an increased risk of thromboembolism. Yes, these cats throw clots. Uh, so the left atrial enlargement that we see in these cats can create blood flow stasis. Uh, so the blood is just kind of sitting in that enlarged pouch and thrombi or clots can form. Sometimes the thrombus can become dislodged and create an embolism. So an embolism is just where a piece of a clot or like if you're a heartworm positive dog, for example, a piece of a worm, mm -hmm. okay, something in your circulation sort of breaks off and lodges someplace where it shouldn't and stops the blood flow to that area. So when a piece of a clot breaks off or the whole clot dislodges, that, that clot, that thrombus, might get stuck in a variety of locations, just simply depending on its size. And one of the more common areas that we see is the end of the aorta, mm. uh, and that's when cats present with a saddle thrombus. 
Hmm. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Finally, uh, there are some cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that just simply experience sudden death. Hmm. Like the cat has been normal, seemingly normal, just hanging out. All of a sudden, the owner finds them dead. Hmm. And so. Yep. Seen that a few times. Yeah. Any cases of sudden death that's unexplainable in cats, it probably HCM would be very high on my list. So that all sounds bad, but are all cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy very sick? No. Uh, surprisingly, the answer is no. These kitties can be completely asymptomatic. Usually cats with mild to moderate HCM have no history of clinical signs at all. As we mentioned earlier, they might not even have a heart murmur. Mm-hmm. Uh, less than half of cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy have an audible heart murmur. You can't diagnose HCM in a cat by hearing a murmur, and finding a murmur does not even necessarily mean that they have cardiac disease at all. Cats who have really severe disease who are in heart failure present like Martini did, okay? Mm -hmm. They have pulmonary edema and or pleural effusion, so they're tachypnic and dyspneic. They have a high respiratory rate. They're not breathing well. They might cough, but again, that's rare in the cat. And cats who present with that saddle thrombus that we were talking about come in with acute, severe pain, cold limbs, no pulse in the affected limbs. Those little paw pads are going to be purple, um, and typically they're they're paralyzed. Mm-hmm. So you can have a, a whole range of presentations, some of which uh, might include patients that have absolutely no abnormalities. So it's, it's really... Really very interesting mm-hmm. how wide of an array of symptoms this can cause. So we talked about Martini's radiographs already, but are there other things that might be seen on radiographs of a cat with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Thoracic radiographs are usually normal in cats who have mild to moderate HCM. So it's not even like diagnosable. <laughs> it's not funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> Most cats with severe HCM have that left atrial enlargement, like we talked about in Martini's case. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the left auricular bump, boom, two, three o'clock position, VD view, okay? <laughs> Seen it a few times, huh? Yeah. <laughs> cats in left heart failure have either pulmonary edema or pleural effusion. I know I've said that several times, but I really just want everyone to remember this. Sometimes they have both, and when they have this, it will be visible on radiographs depending on what they have. Hmm. So what about other tests for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Okay, well, echocardiogram, that's ultrasound of the heart, is the gold standard for diagnosis. On ultrasound, these cats will have a left ventricular wall measurement of greater than 6 millimeters when the heart is in diastole. The segment measured should not be associated with a papillary muscle or moderator band. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go to CE about it, okay? (laughs) Like, we don't want... We don't want to roll up in there, try to guess about measuring. No, no, this needs to be performed by somebody who does ultrasound a lot. If you're interested in doing it, you need to go through a shit ton of training. It's very doable, but like we don't want to do it without knowing what we're doing. This is not a cowboy thing. Yeah, we're not going to cowboy this. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is importante. Other findings supportive of a diagnosis of HCM on ultrasound include the presence of obstruction, (laughs) left atrial enlargement, the presence of auricular thrombi or little clots like we talked about, and evidence of that diastolic dysfunction. 
Echocardiograms really need to be performed by clinicians who have a lot of experience, preferably a cardiologist. <laughs> that is what I put in my notes. <laughs> hint, hint. Word for word. Okay. Wink. Now, we talked about proBNP testing a smidge earlier. This is the best performing biomarker test that we have for mm-hmm. HCM in cats. You can have false positives. Uh, but if this test result is elevated, even in a cat with no clinical signs, they probably should be worked up with an echocardiogram. And again, it's useful for differentiating. Does this dyspneic cat have respiratory disease or cardiac disease? Okay. <laughs> Electrocardiography, which just pause for a second. Electrocardiography and echocardiography are confusingly similar names. And I feel like even veterinary students I see sometimes don't grasp the difference between them. Like no one has ever sat them down and been like, these are similar words. They're two different things. <laughs> and I'm not saying that to make vet students feel bad. I'm saying it because I have the experience of being like, what? When <laughs> I kept hearing this and I'm like, these sound so similar. I thought they were the same thing. But So electrocardiography is the electrical conductance of the heart. Beep, beep, beep. Okay, that mm-hmm. test. Not very useful mm-hmm. for HCM. Uh, you want to do it if your cat has an arrhythmia that you can hear, but otherwise, it's not really going to tell you anything. If you're screening preoperatively all of your cat patients with an electrocardiogram or ECG prior to surgery and thinking that's going to pick up on HCM, you are incorrect. It will not, unless they have an arrhythmia, in which case, probably should have heard that on physical exam. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, and then, you know, the ultimate test. Mm. Histopathology, yeah, well. uh, which is you know if you're if you're looking at histopath of the heart that that means that the patient is not alive. We the heart is not really you, you something you biopsy. No, you <laughs> like, can't just you know like, pull that out, look and see what's wrong, put it back in. It doesn't work no. that way. No, so what we're talking about is histopathology from necropsy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so several abnormalities in the myocardium can be identified by highly trained veterinary pathologists. Okay, this is probably not something that the average clinician can just eyeball because there are changes that occur in the heart that can make the wall thickness look thicker than normal. That's just normal post-op. That's just normal post-mortem change. And so you really need to send your heart in. Okay, so myocardial fiber disarray is a consistent feature of the disease when we see that in Maine Coon cats. Obviously, that is a microscopic situation that we need to look at. And the prevalence of this abnormality in other cats with HCM is largely unknown. So we don't know whether it causes HCM in a lot of cats or just Maine Coons or what. Both interstitial and replacement fibrosis is commonly seen, especially in cats who have severe HCM. Are there any breed, age, and sex predilections for HCM? So, yeah, we talked a little bit about Maine Coons already. So, breed predisposition, Maine Coon, Ragdoll, and Sphinx. Plus, Norwegian forest cats have this weird heart issue that kind of combines aspects of HCM and restrictive cardiomyopathy. So, we'll kind of throw that on the list. As far as sex predilection, males overall. Uh, though there was at least one study of Maine Coon cats that showed that in those cats, there was not really a male-female incidence difference. And then generally, we're talking about middle-aged to older kitties. As far as breed predispositions go, DNA testing is a consideration. 
So blood or cheek swab samples from Maine Coon or Ragdoll cats can be submitted for DNA analysis to special genetic laboratories. Fancy. It is fancy. So how is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy treated? Well, as we discussed earlier, I think it's important to think of treatment in two stages. What are we going to do right now and what are we going to do long term? Mm -hmm. So when a patient presents in distress, like in Martini's case, you manage the heart failure with diuretics and oxygen. Okay. Martini's case is somewhat straightforward. He was dyspneic, pretty unstable. We saw the beelines on ultrasound. We needed to act fast with therapy. He responded. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Not all cats who present in respiratory distress are going to respond well. Mm -hmm. That's why I hate them. Okay. <laughs> I hate this. It just sucks. Okay. I don't hate the animals. I just hate the disease process. Sometimes the heart failure is just too advanced, and sometimes it isn't heart failure at all, uh, but one of the other differentials for dyspnea. Now, I do just want to make a quick aside here before I forget about it. I read quite a bit in my literature review for this topic because it encompassed not only researching hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but also all causes of pulmonary edema and also all causes of left-sided heart failure. So we did like a three-in-one literature review. It took a really long time. Uh. Um, but anyway, the biggest takeaway for me after reading all of that is that getting the right diagnosis and therefore the right treatment into a dyspneic cat is challenging. <laughs> it involves walking a tightrope between taking enough action so that they don't die and not taking so much action that you cause them to die because you pushed ahead too hard for tests and shit like that. So you really have to balance your need for diagnostic testing with the pet's need for oxygen in a low-stress environment. And while it would be super awesome in this perfect imaginary world to immediately get an ultrasound, radiographs, blood work, IV catheter, blah, 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 all that stuff on every distant cat right away is just not ever going to happen. It's just not the reality. These are just really tricky cases, and that is why I famously dislike them so much. Okay, but with all that said, let's talk about therapy more in depth. We don't know of anything that can slow the progression of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy prior to the development of heart failure. We don't know. There's, there's nothing. No solid evidence. There's some evidence that atenolol therapy might help improve the quality of life in cats with occult HCM. Occult HCM just means they're not showing clinical signs, but the evidence is sparse. Hmm. And so a lot of clinicians don't do it because we don't know if it helps. Once moderate left atrial enlargement is present and they start being at risk for developing those thrombi, using Plavix to reduce the risk of thrombus formation is recommended. Now, Plavix is the brand name. The drug name I have trouble with, but it's clopidogrel. When I first started reading about this drug, I only read about it. I never heard anyone say the name. They only ever said Plavix. Mm -hmm. So I always read it as clopidogrel. <laughs> wow. And so I had to look up the pronunciation for this episode. So anyway, Plavix, yeah. generic Plavix. <laughs> okay. All right, you do that to reduce the risk of thrombus formation, okay? Uh, sometimes an ACE inhibitor is also used to reduce cardiac remodeling, but this is controversial. Again, because 
we don't know that it helps, mm-hmm. like for sure. There's not this overwhelming evidence that it helps. This is a tough one. Uh, if the cat is in congestive heart failure, you got to have a loop diuretic. In other words, you need furosemide. Some have tried pimabendin in heart failure cases for cats. Very commonly used in dogs. A lot of evidence to support its use in dogs, not a bunch of evidence to support its use in cats. Mm. It's more anecdotal at this point in cats. So again, that's why it's a plus or minus because we just don't know if it works. It's super lot of cupcakes. So I think with Mm -hmm. that one, we better be pretty damn sure that it works before we go prescribing it. Yep, I've had to buy it before. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. And then essentially, once the patient is in heart failure, the key medications are furosemide and generic Plavix, (laughs) clopidogrel, clopidogrel, Plavix, Plavix, generic Plavix. Okay. Those are the key things. Mm. Okay. I'm glad I'm not the only person with that issue. Well, look, if you have only ever read a specific mm-hmm. word, you've never heard anyone say it knowingly, mm-hmm. your brain just sort of fills it in. Yep. Uh, just kind of like reading uh, Tolkien books and then seeing the movie, and you're like, oh. Oh. That's not how I yeah, was pronouncing that in my head. Didn't. I wonder how, like, did they consult with him? Like, how? Well, he did. Like, dude, how do I say? No, I mean, but like before he died. Well, maybe they did a seance. I don't know. But before he died, was he like? I think he was dead before they made the movies, wasn't he? No, I mean, I'm saying like when people, because this has been a famous Mm -hmm. thing for forever, right? Yeah. So at what point were people like, how do you say these names? Because I've had that happen before with, uh, so like Game of Thrones characters, when you're right. reading it, you're like, oh, that's not how I imagined you would say it or whatever. And I'm, what else? I mean, mm-hmm. definitely other books that I've been like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? Well, you, you know, the, the author's one that made it up. And that's what it true. sounds like in their head. That's true. They, Plus he's got, he has a son that is also an author. He may have. Right. And didn't this know. start off as like bedtime stories or something? So the kids would have known mm-hmm. how to say. Yeah. Anyway, okay, now we are way <laughs> out in left field. And I've lost my spot. All right, JJ, Where? bring it back around. All right, so we've mentioned furosemide several times, but what about treating cats who also have kidney disease? Uh-huh. Yeah. Should all cats have their kidney values checked before starting furosemide? Wee! <laughs> yeah, okay. that would be my personal help. <laughs> okay, managing cats who are in heart failure. And also have concurrent renal disease is tricky. Hmm. Um, now that song's stuck in my head. It's not impossible to manage, to, to co-manage these conditions. I, I certainly have done it. But girl, it's not fun. Mm-mm. The reality is that most of the time when a cat comes in and can't breathe, we can't just go draw blood from it. I mean, maybe some, but the really bad ones. There's no way. you If you would kill a cat by taking radiographs, you damn sure kill it by trying to get a blood sample. Anyway, so like with the radiographs, we don't want to kill the pet with tests. Blood draws are often pretty stressful for cats. So I'm going to tell you what I do. I caution the owners that uh, if there's renal dysfunction, things might not go well. And we often can't know about the renal dysfunction until later. But the cat's got to breathe. Can't really mm-hmm. not breathe. So you really just have to give the Lasix and see what happens. And the owner should always be informed, I think, but the cat's got to breathe. <laughs> so the vast majority of the time when I have a dyspneic cat present, this is not a situation where 
most of the time people aren't like, oh, here is the lab work that they had, you know, last week. Here you go or whatever. Like that. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. a lot of the time it's like they've not been to the vet in 10 years. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, shit, uh, we don't know what's going on with this. So the most of the time I would say I'm giving furosemide with really zero idea mm-hmm. of what sort of kidney power we have remaining because if the camp can't oxygenate, it's not going to matter how healthy the kidneys are. I mean, mm-hmm. to be fair, ew. I mean, you might get lucky and get a urine sample. And... Well, yeah. I mean, so say you had a urine sample and it was super dilute. You had a lot of protein in it. Then you could say, you know, gosh, I have an elevated index of suspicion that your mm-hmm. cat has renal disease. but. I mean, you couldn't diagnose it without a lung, I don't think. And the cat would still have to breathe. Mm -hmm. So then we're at, you know, it, you know, (laughs) sometimes I have owners who are like, but we really, really want to know before we invest all this money in acute treatment, if the kidneys work. And I'm like, do you want an alive cat? Right. (laughs) So if, you know, I, I can't get into it. Okay. What I'll just say is that I've had it happen frequently mm-hmm. that owners really, really want to know about this blood work parameter. And I'm like, here's the breathing parameter is more important at this time. <laughs> Let's talk about okay. priorities. <laughs> That's right. Like, I'm not saying kidneys aren't important. I'm saying as far as the animal being alive anymore, <laughs> the, the the breathing is more pressing. And mm-hmm. we're going to have to deal with that first. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Again, while I'm thinking about it, slightly off topic, but I just want to make sure that we cover this before the episode ends. There's another thing about furosemide that we need to touch on. Having a pet respond positively to furosemide does not necessarily diagnose heart failure. There are occasions other than heart failure where furosemide is sometimes beneficial. And sometimes it's a coincidence. <laughs> so you give them the furosemide, they improve, and it's just a complete coincidence, Okay. So that's why you always want to recommend further testing after the pet is stabilized. You know, if the owner allows it, sometimes they won't. I've seen this sort of thing less often with cats than with dogs. Uh, For whatever reason, I I will a lot of times see like a small, we'll just say like the less than 10 pound coughing poodle. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it'll come in and it's on furosemide. And I'm like, why is it on furosemide? And they're like, well, it was having such bad coughing that they diagnosed it with heart failure and kept it on furosemide because the furosemide helped. And I'm like, no, that does not diagnose your 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 dog with heart failure. I mean, maybe that is what your dog has, but we need more information mm-hmm. before we can say that. Okay. Could also be that your small, white, fluffy coughing dog actually just had bronchitis because furosemide has documented bronchodilation and antitussive effects. Okay, so just something to keep in mind. I'm not saying don't empirically treat furosemide if that's your only option. I'm just saying recognize what you can and can't rule out with this. And follow up. And follow up to the extent that you're able. Okay, (laughs) if you're seeing these older coughing animals, please work the case up to the point the owner allows don't just slap them on furosemide and car- call it heart failure if they get better. And refill it for six months? Or four years. Because you know what doesn't live for four years? Patients in heart <laughs> failure. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, JJ. It's fine. I'm not saying it's impossible. What I'm saying is most patients mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. present with 
fulminant pulmonary edema in a major distress episode. <laughs> okay. Most of them don't. You can't just auto-refill furosemide for four years and never check but them up, never know. make any changes. But I have seen it so many times. You know okay. that owner's going to be on Google like, that veterinarian is a hero and is a miracle. Save my dog uh-huh. from heart disease. And That's like, fine. You know what? Look, I'm, I'll take it. If owners want to get on and say glowing things about us, even if it's slightly medically incorrect, you know what? I'll take it. It's better than <laughs> the, the pitchforks or whatever. Mm-hmm. We got pretty far off topic again. It happens. So let's bring this on back to HCM. Okay. What about the prognosis? Well, for HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it varies. Okay. Mm-hmm. Early we talked about. Heart failure prognosis is bad, okay, mm-hmm. poor long-term generally. But HCM varies widely. This is why I had to do so many literature reviews for this episode, okay? <laughs> so many cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy never have any clinical signs and die of something totally different, and we don't even know about the HCM until they're necropsied. And then it's like, boom, surprise, but that's not what killed them. Very interesting. <laughs> Sometimes even cats with severe hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can live for years without any symptoms at all. Mm. Okay. Mm. However, once they get heart failure, they can get severe symptoms relatively quickly. There are some poor prognostic indicators in HCM cats. Those include severe left atrial enlargement, reduced left atrial function, severe left ventricular hypertrophy, and decreased shortening fraction on the echocardiogram. Cats who develop heart failure can generally be managed medically for months, but not years. Mm -hmm. Most cats with systemic thromboembolism, so we've thrown a clot, are humanely euthanized at the time of presentation, Mm -hmm. especially those with a terminal aortic thrombus, a.k.a. a saddle thrombus. And that's one of the reasons that the prognosis varies so much, because a patient that's had no symptoms ever, never had a diagnosis, never had a murmur, been completely fine, and now, boom, is in with a saddle thrombus, has a terrible prognosis. Whereas another patient who maybe we heard a murmur, we've been monitoring it. The owners have been measuring the resting respiratory rate at home. We see the first signs of something before the cat comes in in fulminant distress. Like, those patients have a much better prognosis. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the ones that never develop any symptoms have an excellent prognosis because <laughs> they don't get sick from it. It's just so weird. Mm-hmm. Okay. Congestive heart failure, secondary to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, worsens over time. It requires escalating doses of loop diuretics and or more frequent Chest taps if the kitty is getting the pleural effusion. Okay. It has been my personal experience that many cats reach a dose of Lasix, at which they start showing signs of kidney failure, renal Mm -hmm. compromise. And when that occurs, I typically see them go downhill pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I did not find any specific research about that, but that's just been my experience. And and I think it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, at home... Owners should be monitoring the cat's sleeping respiratory rate daily. Keep a log and notify the veterinarian when the rate increases. That way, the diuretic dose can be increased or the pleural space evacuated, do a chest tap, before the cat comes in crashing because it can't breathe and requires emergency treatment. 
So what about prevention? Can HCM be prevented? Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, theoretically, since it's primarily genetic, you could technically, like, test these cats in the breeding pool and eliminate them if they have the mutations, okay? Mm -hmm. Using echocardiograms to screen is not really effective because, as we talked about, lots of cats with HCM don't have any changes at all mm -hmm. until it's very severe. And most cats with severe disease are like middle-aged and older, and they'd probably be out of the breeding population anyway. So mm. ultrasound is not super helpful in uh, eliminating those guys from the breeding pool. Gene testing in Maine Coon and Ragdoll cats would seem to be a good idea. However, uh, there has been a lot of pushback about removing all of the carriers from the gene pool. Apparently, it is complicated. We do not have time to get into it on this episode. but just know that there are objections to removing all of those carriers from the gene. Is there a, a sentence that can say why it's complicated? Uh, okay, to my understanding, if I had to summarize it in one sentence, it would be, we don't know what the potential genetic negative effects would be of removing those particular cats from the, uh, from the genetic pool. Uh, so, for example, there are some diseases, like even in people, okay, sickle cell anemia would be a, a very important example of this, okay? So, if you have one copy of the mutation, you don't get malaria. If you have two copies, you get a terrible illness. If you have zero copies, you're susceptible to malaria, okay? So, technically, the one normal, one mutation individual is, quote, healthier because they're immune to malaria, right? Mm -hmm. So this has nothing to do with, with malaria. That was just an example. And this is way longer than a sentence now. That's why I didn't want to get into Sorry. it. But basically, no, I was just like, wait, what? Okay. But basically, they're worried, like, what if this mutation is there for, quote, a reason? Mm -hmm. And something about the heterozygous cats makes them healthier than the homozygous ones that don't have the mutation. Gotcha. So I think the current recommendation was any homozygous cats with the mutation. So you've got two mutated gene copies. They are eliminated from the breeding pool. And any that have just one copy, but have these great other features that we want to preserve, can be bred, but just once. So you might be fixing one problem, but causing five more. That's right, but okay. it's impossible. Like, we just don't know yet. Mm -hmm. If it helps, I mean, I think with the rapidity that DNA advances in gene sequencing is, like, expanding and, like, it's just so... There's so many fucking things going on with that. We've learned so much in the past 10 years. I think in 10 more years, we might be to the point where, like, in people anyway, you get your genome sequenced and your doctor, like, fucking treats you just based on what your gene sequence is like isn't that crazy that sounds great i mean well honestly. we have to wait for the whole like a whole paradigm change to take place which is usually generational so what i'll say then is 20 to 30 years when all of the old school people have not practiced anymore you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. but i think you know in the future that is what you'll probably see so then add 10 years to that for cats and dogs. <laughs> <laughs> At least. 30 if you're in the South. That's just my crazy. <laughs> so 60 years away from, from knowing all that about this. I'll be dead, but I'll haunt somebody. <laughs> Asterisk. 
we are not cat geneticists. <laughs> nope. Bringing it back around. What else do we need to know about HCM? Are there any major takeaways? Okay, I would just say for heart failure in general, cats and dogs, remember that measuring a sleeping respiratory rate at home is the single best way to evaluate these patients. It's better than taking repeat x-rays. It's better than doing a T-fast at the clinic or anything else. The sleeping respiratory rate should be used to adjust furosemide therapy. And I often use it to screen for heart failure in cats and dogs with known heart disease that aren't in heart failure yet. Okay, so say you get Say you get a cat, it does have a murmur. You send it to the cardiologist, the diagnosis is HCM, but no treatment is recommended because the cat's still at moderate. Then I'm going to tell that owner twice a week from now on, I want you to measure, get a stopwatch out, and I want you to measure while the pet is sleeping, how many times it breathes, and I want you to write it down. Mm-hmm. And then we, with that, we can come up with kind of an average, and usually it's less than 20 would be the average. And if that owner is ever like, huh, they seem maybe slightly off or something, or just in normal monitoring, now they're at 25, now they're at 30, but the pet, pet's maybe still eating and stuff. It seems fine. Like, you wouldn't notice anything otherwise. I'm like, bring it in. Mm-hmm. Because I have caught so many developing heart failure patients that way once I started um, knowing that this is so, it's cheap, it's easy to train people how to do, and it gives those pet parents something to that they can do at home. Like, they can take an action, Mm -hmm. and it's free. I mean, you can't get better than a free test. No. So that's the first thing. Second thing, cats with heart failure do not usually cough. I think that's a huge misconception. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to say it again. Cats with heart failure do not cough. They don't. Not usually. Okay? They also don't have to have a heart murmur. So if you get your dyspneic cat in, you listen to its heart, it sounds okay. That doesn't mean the cat doesn't have heart disease. You, you can't rule it out based on that. And then I would just encourage everyone, learn to do thoracic ultrasound, okay? It it sounds intimidating. I was intimidated by it for a long time, but not anymore. It's easy, okay? Mm-hmm. If you go to one of these Vet Blue lectures, I don't remember his name, but the guy that gives it, like, he literally trained his kids to do it. Like, he's like, here's the thing. Da-da-da, I went through the slides. I showed them what it looks like. I showed them how to hold the probe and everything like that. And then he had them do a series of things and look at images and they correctly diagnose like over 90% of the animals. And they don't even, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so like, this Mm -hmm. is easy. Now measuring the left atrial size, that's a little different. That's a more specialized (laughs) thing. But if you, you can pop the probe on and say, yes, no pleural effusion. Yes, no beelines. And it is something you can learn in an afternoon at CE. It is, I mean, totally worth it. Super valuable. I was so excited. (laughs) The first time that I learned about that was in, 2018 2019 Mm -hmm. it was the year that we went to the feline Mm -hmm. conference i remember uh and i came back and i was like what like i had no idea that you could do this like where was this coming out of that class being excited and like starting to use it the very week we got back absolutely and i've not stopped using it since Mm -hmm. then i'm telling you what okay well let's catch up with martini what happens with martini's case okay uh martini was discharged from the hospital in the evening since he was stable in room air he was started on oral furosemide and Plavix pending a cardiac evaluation. He ultimately saw the cardiologist about three months later, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was confirmed via echocardiogram. Uh, the oral furosemide and Plavix were continued, and he did well for about six more months. At that time, he experienced another bout of acute dyspnea, which required a trip to the ER, and he was humanely euthanized at that time. 
Well, it sounds like, though, he was able to have a good several months with his mm-hmm. owners mm-hmm. Uh, where he was well managed. That's good. Yeah. And sometimes those several months are, are nice to get. They are. Mm-hmm. Especially if you think about, you know, a cat, which this was sick. He got like an extra six three months, plus six. So he got an extra nine months. Yeah, that's pretty good. If you think about a cat living, how old was Martini? Eight. Eight years old. So you think about Martini is eight. They got almost a whole other year with him. Yeah. I mean, that's a significant percentage of his life. Yeah, that is a lot of time. Yeah. So. Worth it. Yeah. Well, this has been an exciting episode. Mm-hmm. I definitely did a lot of research to put this episode together. <laughs> it is appreciated. I learned some things. <laughs> it was a lot. But we got everything in in the one section. We didn't have to do a part two, like on TikTok. Okay. And I will say that we are actively looking for cases right now. And we really want to hear from you in preparation for an upcoming episode with the therapist, Dr. Lori Fonkin, who's been on the podcast season one and season two. She wants to hear from our listeners about how they practice resiliency in their day-to-day life and the things that they do to help improve their quality of life and be able to sort of bounce back from from difficulties. So uh, we would really love to hear from everyone on that topic. If you wouldn't mind, just zip us an email and that'll help us put together that episode that'll be coming out in, you know, uh, probably what, a couple of months, I mm-hmm. would say. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Please do. So if you have questions, comments, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Yes, please. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>